everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of February 10th, 2022. I'm here with writer Jason Hellerman. Hey, how's it going, Charles? Uh, writer Yaroslav, and I don't know your last name off the top of my head, Yaroslav. Uh, Yaroslav Altunin. Yaroslav Altunin. Yaroslav Altunin. I would have yeah. remembered it if I'd <laughs> checked my email. Yaroslav Altunin and editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. I am, as hey. always, Charles Hain. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the Oscar nominations are out, and what does that have to do with Last Jedi? Hmm. We're going to be talking about uh, <laughs> some rumors that are coming in tech news, and also some small little tools from Joby that I think are super fun. And we're going to wrap all that up with a really great Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, first subject. Oscar nominations have rolled out. And there's <laughs> there are there are so many shocks and snubs and exciting things to talk about. But we're going to talk specifically about well, look, we talk about the Oscars and awards on this podcast a lot, and there's a familiar refrain we have, which is like, we don't really think that it's a determining factor in quality, and we kind of think the hype and the PR aspect of it is understandable, but also sort of overblown in terms of, hey, what's actually good? What's connecting with audiences and what gets remembered? But I'm going to start from the standpoint of this year, I had a really unique feeling about awards circles and winners and nominations because my favorite movie, which I've mentioned many times from 2021 on this podcast was Nightmare Alley. And it did not perform well in terms of the box office. And they did a lot of things to push it PR-wise. We had the editor and the cinematographer on this podcast, but they also did a black and white. They took that on the road and showed it in theaters, projected it. They've done, Guillermo del Toro has done a ton of stuff. They did stuff with TCM and just trying to get people to see this movie. And I'm going on and on about it because I realized, and I'm old to have realized this, but I realized that, man, some nominations and wins would do a world of good for this very good movie that I think is flying under people's radars. Like, because it, well, it opened against Spider-Man, but it also is just not like, it just didn't connect from with the masses. And I want people to see it because I think it's like a great example of, of the amazing things that filmmakers can do. And yet I was thinking like, hmm, maybe this is why I should sort of change my attitude a little bit about the awards because the awards would be a chance for this thing to hit a bigger audience. So that was kind of my, a little bit of a lesson for me this year about like, maybe I do care more about what, what wins and is nominated. Maybe you do have some feelings in that cold heart of yours. <laughs> I, I have a quick question. So I remember seeing a lot of stuff for Nightmare Alley, and I me have not dived in as much as other people have. But I guess I would be like the test case of like the average moviegoer. And I remember watching a couple of trailers, seeing it in front of movies at the theater, and yet I wasn't felt drawn to it, even though it had a great cast and and it was Guillermo del Toro who I love. But I may, I, I feel like that trailer the one that kept, you know, showing in front of everything didn't hook me because I just didn't know what the story was. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, that's a good point. Trailers and advertising is really hard to nail. You know what got me? I mean, I was set 
to talk to the filmmakers. So I was sort of like talking to and communicating with PR. And I just did a quick Google on like, okay, what is this? Like before I go see it and before I commit, I just want to get a, a, a little sense of it. And I read like a quick breakdown and I was like, oh my God, this is like right up my alley. No, no pun intended. And I was just like, I've got to see this and I'm not reading another word. But I, so I never really went the trailer route on this one. But that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's just hard to cut through the noise. I mean, I think it's also as much about the weird political gamesmanship of the Oscars. And this is one of those things that like, I remember talking about before I worked in movies, even back in Maryland in high school, I feel like people like the knowledge of like, oh, well, that person was like, do an Oscar and like, oh, they just won one. So they're not going to win another. It's something that like, even pre-movie we talked about. And it's like, you know, GDT won big for The Shape of Water, which is a movie that rocks and totally deserved all of its awards. And I feel like the Oscars, like Oscars voters have a like, well, I just gave you a prize. I should give someone else a prize mm. vibe. So totally. I can totally imagine like a random Academy voter being like, well, we just gave you all of that attention with the fish stick movie and you made me watch <laughs> a fish stick and the movie was so good. I didn't care. So like, I'm not going to give it to you again. So, but yeah, I mean, it is a bummer when a movie, it's also a bummer when a movie that seems like it should have mass appeal. Like I haven't seen it yet because three-year-old, but like watching the trailer, I was like, I don't know what this is about, but it's Guillermo del Toro and circuses. And so I mean, like I cannot (laughs) wait. I think it also, the marketing of that movie for me was very influenced by the Oscar win for um, the Mm. shape of water, because Mm. I feel Mm. like, like even calling him GDT, I still don't know if Guillermo del Toro has crossed over to where outside the film industry people are aware of him the way they are with some other directors. Yeah. Good good and I, good point. And I feel like the marketing was a little inside baseball where it was like, Hey guys, you all love Guillermo del Toro, here's his new movie and it has all these people in it, go see it. And I'm like, I don't know that outside the industry he is as famous as yeah, he is totally. outside the industry. Can I just jump in? I want to hear what Jason has to say on this, but I want to jump in on another point about what makes me start to question my distaste for awards is that it is only because The Shape of Water, a.k.a. Fishstick, won that he got what he got to do with this. Like, this was absolutely a movie you get to make when you've won an award and you have like, and I think, and he said it many times, he was like, this is like kind of a dream special project and it was no holds barred. And when you're watching it, you're like, man, it would be tough to make this movie this way. If people weren't just like, okay, dude, here you go. Like have at it. Like it really is. And and I think he totally crushed it, but he and, and all the people on cast, every craftsperson, but still, it's just something that I can't, I think it would be very hard, like I said. So again, sort of like chalk one up for the value of an Oscar. I think, you know, all good points. So I, I won't uh, go back over them. The one thing I'll say with these awards and, and with these movies like Nightmare Alley that, and West Side Story that I feel like were criminally underseen, the elephant in the room, in my opinion, is streamers, right? You see things like Power of the Dog and you're like, yes, it's a great movie. Yes, it's one of the best of the year. But do we think anything behind the nomination is just pure accessibility? I can tell anybody, hey, if you have Netflix, you can turn this on. Like, much to my chagrin, right? Like, I wish I had seen Power of the Dog on the big screen. But, like, I didn't get to see Drive My Car until yesterday because I had to find a theater in Los Angeles that was playing. You know, there was no way to just punch play. And I think, you know, now that Nightmare Alley is on HBO Max, and I think even The Last Duel, which is one of my favorite movies this year, is on there as well, like, 
if you missed it in theaters, you missed it. And I do think a lot of Academy voters, we, we talk about screeners, et cetera. Uh, I do mm. think they get lazy. And especially with the general public, I think they get lazy. So accessibility is one thing that popped in my mind just looking at this list of nominations. You know, what was easy for people to see? What made it easy? Um, also Power of the an Dog. Annual, yeah. Yeah. It totally caught just, fire yeah. because of its yeah. accessibility. Like, I Absolutely. I anybody can press play. Yeah. Right. And my parents don't know who Jane Campion is. They definitely don't know who Guillermo del Toro is. But they mm-hmm. watched Power of the Dog because it was on their banner on Netflix. Yeah. And now like they know who Bronco like, Henry is. As exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now they're big Bronco people. Uh, just an annual reminder, too. It's specific branches for the Academy that vote. So if we get upset over something in sound or whatever, it's like that's who voted for sound. It's not it's not everyone. Everyone only nominates the best picture. So I think when you look at the best picture, it is interesting to say, like looking at a category like that, this is who everybody thought. This is the consensus. And, and a lot of niche titles did feel like they fell into um, niche categories, but the the best picture list does feel like a, an amalgam of just everyone's thoughts and feelings. Um, Which is why was marked by COVID. Yeah, again, this is another thing I've always believed, and I feel, and I probably say it every year. I believe that the best screenplay noms historically are actually the list of the best movies because I think the writers are picking. <laughs> the pool, just the writers. And I think they know. <laughs> I think they have a really good sense. I think their idea of what like really worked that year is like ends up being like, go back in time and compare every year's best screenplay noms to best picture noms because there's so many times there's a best picture winner that you're just like, what? I've never heard of that movie. Let alone, or maybe you have and you've seen it and you're like, I guess maybe in the context of 1952, it was great, but man, I'm, I don't know what won in 1952. It might be something great. Sorry. But but the screenplay is just like, it's always like five like tight, nicely crafted, like classic evergreen movies. Leave it to the screenwriter to say that, of course, the screreenwriters know what the best <laughs> movies are. Yeah, I'm, I'm here, like to, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm here will, to support I will it. die on that hill as well. Yeah. <laughs> also in 1952, uh, the best picture winner was An American in Paris. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good, yeah, you know, it's probably not. Well, I don't want to go into it. Yeah. I mean, how <laughs> hey, look, it, sh- it should have been singing Paris. in the rain, right? Yeah. Singing <laughs> in the rain should have won. That's my opinion. And I'm a writer. There you go. Uh, Jason, I'm glad you brought up uh, Drive My Car because uh, that was playing uh, just down the street at the Aero Theater. And I remember seeing it. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And like the director was there and, and I didn't know anything about it. And I think only after kind of that moment, like the the algorithm and all my devices kicked in and started pushing me news about this movie. And then I ended up going see, going and seeing it, the new art. But like having access to that movie is is so valuable. And I had to go out of my way, like make a you know, a spot in my schedule, drive halfway across town, buy tickets at some, you know, theater that I've never knew existed, just to go see this movie. And so I think your your statement about accessibility is so true. Like there has to be some sort of, you know, theatrical push for people to have access to movies. And I think during a pandemic, that's very hard to begin with. And, you know, we sometimes forget that we're still in a pandemic, at least the tail end, hopefully. But I, I hope that as we kind of go back or, you know, enter this new world that we're kind of in, there is that kind of, you know, push for accessibility for theaters because it's so valuable. You know, it's like the theater. Like the Academy Awards, yeah, it used to be such a big deal because 
everyone went to the movies, right? There were like TV was not whatever. It was a night out. Mm -hmm. People had seen most of the best pictures. Now, over the last 25 years, we've really seen that drop and change and especially almost hyperactively in the last 10, you know, there's a lot of movies nominated that people aren't seeing or that aren't box office things. And it is because LA is, you know, it's its own bubble and art and the people who appreciate art are their own things. You know, I saw this morning. Yeah. One, you know, one of my favorite like Philadelphia talk radio hosts was like, I watched Power of the Dog over the weekend. Terrible movie. You know, I'm like, you're wrong. <laughs> but like, but like, and it's pregnant. And I think like if I was a betting man, that's why I would think maybe it would win Best Picture. But like, it is, you know, it is become polarizing. And I think the, the Academy Awards has done a lot to try and keep up with people across America who want to watch, across the world who want to watch. But I also think, you know, at times it could be a disservice to movies like the drive my cars which i think when i watched it i was like oh this might be the best movie i watched this year yeah but but if they want to win they probably should go for best foreign feature you know what i mean like trying to make it's, these decisions i think are hard I, yeah i call it i'm kind of curious charles to hear you on this one too but like i kind of have seen it as the dark knight phenomenon because that was the year that i think there started to be this very large discrepancy between movies that that the masses had seen in like a large percentage a, a bigger than 65% versus movies like that were maybe under 60% of the population. But the Oscars and the idea of them was always like, but this is for like everybody knows. Right. But suddenly there was like uh, five movies nominated. The movie that most of the country loved and saw that year was a Batman movie that was not nominated. And I don't know what one, but we we entered into this territory where the movies that were winning were smaller and they were hitting smaller audiences. And the Los Angeles bubble, like you said, where we are, as Charles said, like very, very sure that everything we think is cool and matters is cool and matters to everybody else, which is just not true at all. It it was heightening and intensifying. And now we're sort of at this point where Spider-Man happened. Let's get it. We got to talk about the last Jedi angle because that's where this is all headed, right? But but Spider-Man yeah, this but year happened. first, too. Yes, you're, you're going to have to share those. I'm done rambling. But Spider-Man was this year's Dark Knight is what I'm saying. And that it's like, people were like, hey, we should totally nominate this movie because everybody actually saw it. Unlike that other stuff you guys say is so great. All right, real quick. I do want to say one more thing. I really hope that movie theaters kind of, at least in the future, somehow embrace kind of the regional theater community theater aspect because like you know back then not back then but you know years ago you had to go to the big city to go see a theater play and then you know as like suburbs grew and as you know the midwest grew you had regional theater kind of bring that art into those smaller communities and i think maybe that that might be the way to go for movie theaters you have like little mom and pop shops that you know bring spider-man to you know a town where you can't really watch it elsewhere and then also show drive my car i don't know maybe a thought yeah i mean i i've long thought that smaller theaters need to really embrace the like i don't need to show the same movie from friday till the next thursday like tuesday through thursday should be a real opportunity to like bring interesting independent stuff to the mm -hmm. theater mm -hmm. and distributors need to get on board with that but what i wanted to say sort of like addressing what you were talking about george was like what was interesting about the Oscars for a long time was that it was one of the platforms that gave an opportunity to watch independent, like to get attention to smaller things. So the Oscars were like, oh, we yep. can drive attention and help you like become aware of things you might not have otherwise, which is interesting when we think about like 
how do independent films occasionally cross over, like in the bedroom, getting a big audience after the nod, that kind of thing. But it's just funny to watch the quicksand shift where like there was like 10 or 15 years where it's like there was a thriving independent scene and occasional crossover to the Oscars. And the Oscars were like, we can we can point our attention at you. But now in the last two or three years, the Oscars are like, I have no attention left to give. No one's paying attention to me. Like, how do I get attention? Like they had the attention and could foster it on others. But like that's ending. Like ratings were awful last year. No one noticed that there were no Golden Globes this year. Like nobody was like, oh, I really miss the Golden Globes. Like they were just gone. That's <laughs> and- <laughs> such a good. It's so funny. Like I really miss the Golden Globes this year. Said nobody. Yeah, like no. Yeah, exactly. Like it just <laughs> didn't happen, and no one noticed. So now, it didn't happen at like, all. Or no, it did. Like, something okay, happened. Okay. Uh, <laughs> something happened. But it that wasn't. is the best part. I think something did happen. <laughs> but it wasn't a thing. Like it doesn't. Like like who won? You know what I mean? Like who won? Nobody knows who won. I guess we can like, Google it and find out. Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't like usually there's like, you know, two or three years ago, four movie nerds would be like, oh, my God, the hours won Golden Globes. I guess they're setting up for an Oscar like we would know. And now we just don't because they're just over. Like they just like they they just didn't. They weren't a thing. Like the awards were given out, but nobody gave a shit. The Golden Globes are not a thing anymore. They might be again, but they certainly weren't this year. And it's like, I mean, honestly, I feel like if I had an indie film out right now, would I want the Oscars to nominate it or would I want there to be a viral TikTok that somehow related mm. to it promoted it and it's like well depending upon the audience like if it was a younger audience I might be more excited if it was like oh there's a viral TikTok that encourages people to see it than an Oscar nom depending upon the audience I think Charles, I think the, the ocean's shifting I have never felt so old <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. I'm Me neither. aware that like yeah. every once in a while someone will be like, this TikTok with seven million views in four hours has driven this person to, you know, quit their job or whatever. Yeah. People have people's like our artists' careers have exploded because their song popped off on TikTok. Like people are now like performing musicians because of TikTok. And that just blows my mind. I think it was little Nas X, right? He he got he he blew up because of TikTok, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a great platform to kind of get yourself out there, but man, uh, it is beyond me. Unfortunately, I am not the demo for that for that piece of software. So, there's a tie-in here to the Last Jedi, Charles and Jason, which is yeah. I mean, long story long. Yesterday, actually, over the past three days, because I have nothing to do and was tracking it. It's my wife's out of town and just spending time on Twitter watching TV. <laughs> is uh, is that The Last Jedi continues to trend. It trends off and on. It's been trending off and on since it was released years ago. Uh, and mostly there's just this weird groundswell of people who not only decide they don't like the movie, but decide that it needs to trend again with all their grievances. And now, I know Charles <laughs> and I have talked about this before. We are fans of the movie. So, well, Charles, I'll let you take it away in a second. But I guess my my strange rant is I am like how about how about this actually instead of ranting I'll pose a question to to all of you can you remember a movie that polarized people so much that you know almost almost five years after it was released people still bring it up I mean I I'm talking like not even like the Gilles of the world not even like the most uh, emotionally affecting movies like Moonlight or or um you know I'm trying to think of like other like big groundswell like game changer movies like. I don't think they continue to pop up and trend, maybe get out once in a while, you know, but like in terms of the last Jedi, the, 
vitriol. Acidity, yeah, vitriol, everything on the internet. It's I find it to be fascinating and, and honestly in, indicative of a weird time. I know that Twitter active users really only represent something like, you know, like six percent of uh people. But it but it does feel like it's a very vocal thing. And um yeah, I just pose the question like, have you guys ever seen a movie do something like this? And do you have any theories as to why The Last Jedi has become this weird bastion of <laughs> hate Charles you want to kick it off here I mean so I, I just want to I thought it was really interesting you also brought up Gili because the interesting thing to me about all the hate is like there are cultural products that become jokes right like Gili is a great example Gili was so notoriously bad it ended Martin Brest's career and if you're young enough you forget that like Martin Brest did like Midnight Run and Beverly Hills Cop oh, and wow. Scent of a Woman and like you know, the guy who directed Midnight Run and Beverly Hills Cop then made Geely and has not directed since. Sent of like, a woman! Sorry, yeah. so I'm obli- you're <laughs> obligated to do a, a bad Pacino if someone mentions Scent of a Woman. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to remember that and use it. In, it's one of my favorite. Scent of a Woman is absolutely one of my favorite movies of all time. Best Thanksgiving movie ever. But yeah, oh, Scent of a Woman. That's a good yeah. one to know. I, I will keep yeah. that in the pocket. Yeah. But, the you know, the point remains, like, it's a career killer to make a movie that bad. And what's interesting is that, like, the Last Jedi, which is a movie that I thoroughly love, and I love Ryan Johnson, and I think he's a great director. Like, his career's fine. Like, Knives Out made a ton of money. He got, like, a boatload of money to turn Knives Out into a new franchise. It's possible in 50 years that it's going to be the Knives Out universe, and there's going to be, like, the grandson of that. You know, like, we're going to, like, all, like, he's like franchising Perot, but for yeah. America. Yeah. And, like, he's going wide with it, and I love it. And, like, God bless him. It's going to be super fun. And, like, you know, that like that could potentially be a bigger universe than star Wars. But for some reason, my my best guess is that we're in in an interesting period where in the absence of other markers of identity, everybody is sort of, you know, human beings like to feel like we are part of something and like to build concepts of identity on things. And I think that, you know, as the church collapses and politics collapse, like I think people look for other things that can become markers of identity and I think for a large swath of certain chapters of the internet, like hating on Last Jedi is, my, is a marker of personality and identity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of all the things, like I, I'll take that over joining a fascist group. Like if if you're if, if it's between one or the other, I'm like go hate Last Jedi. Like that's fine. Although sadly, although sadly, this can segue to my piece. But sadly, the two things are not so far apart. They are like adjacent. That's what I'm saying is that like, I yeah. think there's a lot of people who potentially hate the last Jedi and because of that, they be, don't yeah. end up joining a fascist group. And I'm like, oh, okay, I see so, what you're saying. Yeah. It's like, it's either or for them. I think there are also a lot of fascists <laughs> who hate the last Jedi. Yeah. The, I mean, there was some very like, ugly. The empire did nothing wrong. The empire did nothing wrong. <laughs> there was some very ugly the racism time. related to <laughs> transport, the Star Tours ran on time. It took too long for me to come out with that. But uh, <laughs> there, there were some very ugly race and and misogynistic aspects to the hate of the sequels and the Last Jedi. And uh, kind of similar with that, Paul Feig Ghostbusters. Like it was also like that. Like that one also just like blew up with hate. But it doesn't have like annual renewal of hate. Jason, to answer your question. I can't think of anything, but where I think is similar. Ghost, I'll say Paul Feig's Ghostbusters is actually an excellent comp. It's close. Just in terms of yeah. like, people seem devoid, uh, you know, and I'll let you finish in a second, George, but I, I want to get in here. Like 
people just seem devoid of being able to analyze a movie based on its merit alone. Because I will say the the thing with the Last Jedi is like you can't have a cogent conversation with someone about it without without it, especially not on the internet, without it turning into yeah like Hyperbole. racist yeah yeah hi, like and and to the point where it's like I think like sets forth a dangerous precedent of like them wanting to tank movies. It's it's what happened with that Ghostbusters sort of like mm-hmm. angry people tanking a movie that's just like a a comedy, you know, like that's kind of less like a not very statement driven comedy. Um, I'm actually going to go further yeah. in my theory. I think the fact that The Last Jedi is good is what keeps it alive. Like it is good. Oh, great, because, great, great version. Because like the Paul Feig Ghostbusters, I love Paul Feig. He does great work. His, his Ghostbusters doesn't quite work. Like the edit is sloppy. Like there's even mm. scenes in that movie Never where like, Oh, uh, it just doesn't work. Like, there's like the best example is there's a point where like uh, Leslie Jones has to add a button on a scene, and like you know she clearly like improvised thirty different buttons, and they include three of them. Like you know a, a train is going away on the subway tracks or whatever, and they cut to her button, and then they cut to another button, and then they cut to a third button. And I was like, mm. no, no, a scene needs one button. Like, and like I know you liked all three of those buttons, and they're good, but you need to pick one. Like it's yeah, the it is thing. indulgent. It's absolutely indulgent, and no, I, I, I think Puffy's a master. Yeah, so but uh, I don't yeah. even think that's indulgent. I think that shows a director fighting with a studio, and I mm. think that the director on set mm. probably got a bunch of different buttons, and then a studio was like, "Well, some of our test audience left this joke. Some of our test audience left this joke. Let's make sure they're both there." I think that's yeah. bad. I don't. You like, know, I don't yeah. think Paul Feig yeah. is indulgent. I think he got. Sure. I think the edit got slop on that, and I usually in a sloppy edit, I suspect other things but because the movie's not as good it disappears faster like when people say ghostbusters mm-hmm. like i don't even think about that one whereas like last jedi is a legit good movie and people hated it because it had a woman of color in one of the lead roles well and I, so, so i don't i disagree here's where i disagree i don't think it's a good movie and i don't like it you mean um, it's but, a great movie that's, <laughs> that's where you disagree? but but i i kind of want to take the subjectivity out of it because i think we're talking about something bigger or more interesting than just my opinion um well uh, to me my opinion is always the most interesting thing but not to the people listening i don't think but but my point is that with the last jedi i think one it's part of something super duper hallowed right in star wars like ghostbusters has its kind of ups and downs the ghostbusters one's like perfect amazing ghostbusters 2 you know, and then, so it's like it was a reboot with different kids. Like this is like there's all this stuff wrapped up in. Oh, they brought Luke back. What did they do with Luke? And there's this whole thing just about that because Luke is such an important figure, sadly, to so many old men, white men's lives. <laughs> that like what you do with Luke really has. But so I think it it goes even. I think people turned to things like. There's a woman of color at the center. There's a woman Jedi. I think they started like in the nooks and crannies. Their hate kind of seeped into these weird places that made me uncomfortable with how I dislike the movie. Because I was like, well, I don't dislike it because there's a woman Give of color. The right? But, you know, <laughs> right. But the, the, the giving into the hate and the way that it manifested made me super uncomfortable. And I will say on nofilmschool.com, the website where this podcast lives, I wrote about Paul Feig's Ghostbusters being paved over when they decided to reboot again with kind of an actual sequel from the son of the man. This was just when it was announced, not even when the movie was being made uh, or when the movie came out with Son of, of, oh God, Ramus. No, not Ramus. Sorry, forgetting his name. Director um, of Ghostbusters. Um, but anyway, that the Ghostbusters 2 
the new Ghostbusters Afterlife felt to me when it was announced like, oh, they're repaving. They're going with something that's more about, you know, a relationship within Hollywood and nepotism. And they think that's going to connect it. And, and it made me angry. And the vitriol we got, I pulled the post, which is the only time I've ever done it. I deleted it from the website. Oh, wow. I was so disturbed by the things people were saying about that Ghostbusters movie, about Leslie Joe, just all of it was shocking on Facebook everywhere. The way the internet responds, and I think The Last Jedi is more polarizing because it's Star Wars, because there are people like you guys who love it and think there's nothing wrong with it. And in fact, it's pretty good. And also because it touches on all this stuff of like, you are not going to turn my universe that's mostly white men into a universe that's, you know, everything but, and the only white male figures are quite problematic. To me, that's not what's wrong with the movie. There's a lot of things yeah. I don't like about that movie. But yeah, I just, it's, it's such a mess. It's such a mess. I'd love to jump in and, and um, kind of give some, expand on that idea of kind of toxic fandom. You know, George, you were talking about how important Star Wars is. To me, it was it's very important. Uh, when I first, I'm originally from Russia. When I first arrived in America, that was the first movie I saw. Didn't speak a lick of English. And this guy, he was a theater tech who was babysitting me because my mom worked in, in theater uh, or still works in theater. And he was like, you know, with his hand, like spaceships and explosions. And I was like, I want to watch this. Yes, please. <laughs> and I, I, I don't even remember watching it, but it was that like, he like had the VHS in his hand and he did the spaceship hand thing. And I was like, I'm on board, man. I'm here for it. <laughs> and so like that to me, was like the beginning of like my filmmaking journey. Like I remember it so vividly. And that movie, the original one, A New Hope, I mean, redefined the genre, the science fiction yeah, genre. You had like sure. Flash Gordon and like, it was, yeah, and Star Trek was out with like, you know, the weird kind of like sets made out of PVC tubes, you know, where you had to use your imagination. Like this one showed you the imagination and it was awesome. And it became this kind of behemoth that that I don't think has been repeated ever since. And I think I I I have like a similar kind of thing for for Jason uh, Doctor Who because I know that they did they made a couple of changes in the last couple of seasons with the last Doctor being female. Yeah, there's a female. and people lost their mind. You know what I mean? And I think because it's such a like staple for you know British culture, Doctor Who being around for so long that people hated it or loved it you know there there that is was very polarizing at least from what i read and i mean yeah that's a smaller kind of niche you know property but with bond to, they've been clear about how they're oh they're not gonna do that they've made it very clear the broccoli mm, but like every time i see something that's that's so polarizing or people have this reaction and like you know star wars the last jedi had its problems from a filmmaking standpoint you know what i mean i don't think I think J.J. Abrams took too many liberties, maybe not enough risks. It's like a weird combination that are very, you know, weird combination of things that are very contradictory, at least in my head. But beyond that, like the fandom and like toxic fandom, you know, we can go into like uh, K-pop fans. They are, I think, worse than Star Wars fans. They'll they'll like tear you apart. They'll find out where you live and like send cops to your house. I mean, I'm exaggerating. They won't do that. But like the things I've heard that K-pop fans would do is atrocious. And 
then giving them a platform like Twitter or the internet or TikTok or whatever, you know, anonymizing, anonymizing, making them anonymous. anonymizing, anonymizing. There we go. Thank you, Charles. It gives them a sort of power and safety to really say terrible, terrible things. And I, I want to say that this is more of a topic. This is more of a conversation about like toxic fandom than it is about, you know, how we feel about a movie or, you know, like I feel like the the issues that come up in people's reactions to the to a movie is more of a symptom of, you know, like the toxicity that some fandoms bring. You know? What do you think about that? The, the question, it's a good question. I kind of want to piggyback and this top this this topic we could talk about for an entire podcast or like oh, a yeah. limited series of podcasts. But I want to, what I want to piggyback to the question and ask back to everybody, because Jason had a good question. So you mentioned Doctor Who. We talked about Ghostbusters. We talked, we've talked about Last Jedi. We've talked about how this kind of becomes about toxic fandom. My question is, because I mentioned James Bond and how they've kind of come out and said, yeah, we're not going to do that. Make it a woman. Do you guys think we're in a growing pains phase where there's progress happening? And there are aspects of our culture that are lagging in terms of accepting these ideas. Or do you think that we're not going to move towards, that this is a hiccup, that this is not a, a change, a sea change that we're seeing where it becomes more normal? Do you think that we are just kind of like in this moment where, oh yeah, they're going to try this stuff, but nah, 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 nah. We're going to pave over it, you know, Ghostbusters Afterlife style. Build a parking lot. I think we're in a pivot from monoculture to pluriculture and the connection that you were, the connection that all of us on this phone call have, all, all of the, the connection that all of us on this podcast have and like men between 40 and 60 have <laughs> with Star Wars is just not possible today because it was it. Like I wore yeah. out the VHS tapes that I taped <laughs> off TV with yeah, commercials same. when those movies showed because there was nothing else. There's nothing else that good. There were other things. I could watch that like crappy reruns of Flash Gordon, which like I would probably think are cool now, but at the time I was like, that looks fake. And like it was it. Like monoculture from like the fifties to the eighties, there was like this very small pile of stuff that dominated personality and the emotional investment people made in that is huge. And we're pivoting to a world where like I don't think I, you know, my daughter's three and a half. And like, you know, she likes Iron Man, she likes Spider Man, she likes Hulk, she likes Peppa, she likes like there's so much more. Yes. And so yes. like, if there's a bad Peppa season when she's 24, I sincerely <laughs> doubt she's going to care about the weird <laughs> Peppa season when she's 24. Like there's just so, so, so much now. So I think we're just in that pivot stage. And then when our generation dies off, like I feel like the zoomers are waiting for us. Like I'm late Gen X. You guys might be early millennial. Like, they're just going to wait for us to die off the way we're waiting for the boomers to die off with their obsessive attachment to, like, not letting people have health care. And, like, it's the same, you know. Or the Beatles. Like, not trying to yeah. knock the Beatles, but it's or a little John Wayne movies them. where he plays not <laughs> white men, but is a white man. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> just like leave, John Wayne leave the Beatles out of this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Come on. I'm, I'm 34 and I'm, you know. The Beatles are the Beatles, George. The yeah, Beatles are that's great, fair. but like if you're 23, the Beatles are just another band. In a way that, like, mm -hmm. if you're of a I wonder certain about age, that, the, but yeah, I yeah. I mean, I, I teach grad school. They're, the Beatles are not okay. coming up. Like it is not a thing. <laughs> so, like, I, you know, like even in the 20 years I've been teaching, 
20 years ago, I could reasonably assume that all of my students had seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars. And like, if I made a reference to one of those movies that like, in terms of like teaching a plot point or a reversal or a lighting thing, they've all seen them. And now that assumption is like, I just, I haven't made that assumption in 10 years. Like people in their twenties haven't seen all of those movies, have no interest in seeing any of those movies and are bringing in all sorts of other things where they're like, Oh, can we talk about th this scene was later? Like, why does this ending sequence work or whatever? And it's like just a huge wide pool of stuff. It's it a harder like as a teacher, but it's great. It feels like a Casablanca of our generation, you know, and like the films that like our parents grew up on. And now it's like, Oh no, the films we grew up on are now, yeah. you know, That's that's a good point. I think, Charles, remember, we talked about monoculture before and we got a great email. This might be a good shift to our... Oh, you're right, question. you're right, you're right, you're right. But we got a great email that was about monoculture versus, like, white male monoculture, sort of. Remember that? Like, I think you might Is be able to quote it better than me, but it was but it was well, like, it was like as a non-white, like cisgendered male, I'd never found your monoculture to be applicable to me. So me and Charles were like record scratch, like, whoa, oh, that's, oh, yeah, we just yeah. don't even see our privilege, you know? No, I'm saying this is all a good thing. I'm glad monoculture yeah. is gone. Oh, no, it totally. limited. Totally. It left us with, like, incredibly few choices. And, like, the thing we don't remember, everybody always talks about, like, well, where are all the great movies today compared to, like, 99% of any movie that comes out any year is fucking garbage. And, like, <laughs> they are. They're, it's, like, terrible. And TV is, too. Like, most stuff made is not good. So, like, I want the most stuff made possible so we have the best shot of having good stuff. And it takes a while to find out what that good stuff is and to get a new perspective on it and to, like, and to see it for what it is. So, like, no, I remember that email that was very much like, guys, remember monoculture excluded everybody. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I'm excited that the monoculture of, like, three TV channels that I grew up with is over and that there's, like, a near infinity of platforms for content to find a voice and connection because that's that's better. It's just inherently yeah. better. But it also means It's absolutely means that, better, yeah. Yeah, but it does mean that people's emotional re relationship with content will be much different. Like, the emotional connection people of a certain age have with Star Wars is just not going to happen again. Yeah. Yeah. Because and in and in a Hollywood that continues to remake the things out of monoculture, the pillars of these of that culture, it's interesting to like I think that's where the backlash comes in because people A don't like change and B, they don't like feeling like they're not the dominant force behind the art that they think is great now. It's what we saw with Ghostbusters, it's what we're seeing with Star Wars. And it, it would be what we would see with Bond if they did change it to a woman. I think there would be a very vocal outcry of people wrongfully so wanting to claim all art is theirs and that's why i think you get so frustrated when hollywood refuses to make original ideas because i do think as charles is saying 99 percent of it's absolute shit but if we could get a one percent of new ideas we could really expand what the world's seeing but instead we're getting one percent of recycled ideas which you know breeds infighting and at times you know, shackles people to a monoculture that maybe has nothing to do with the way they grew up, the way they want a story to be, or, you know, forces them into iconic tropes that just don't matter or don't, you know, mesh anymore. Guys, as we talk about this, I am currently holding a Darth Vader action figure. So I just want you guys to know that I am still Star Wars obsessed. No, but I, there's an interesting point to the 99% of things are bad because I, how do I, casual just friend conversation with an executive I'm friends with recently. And we were talking about what it's like on that side of things. And one of the things he was telling me was like, you know, one, one of the reasons people don't realize it's so tough is like you hear pitches all the time, but so many slots are spoken for 
by things nobody chose because of pre-existing relationships where there's just like, well, we have a deal with so-and-so or we have a long-standing relationship with so-and-so. So all these slots we fill, even on our streamers and our movie slot, like they are like, oh, we've got to develop that. Like 99% of my work has to go towards like working on developing things that are already like have to happen. And then there's like a couple times you can take a swing and be like, oh, this cool idea that's new from this new person that I love. Like, it's just, those are so, they're almost like pet projects like, and they happen in the margins because so much of it is about this bulk of momentum that's rolling. And so much of that is coming from that older monoculture. Like, that's just like, well, but we already, you know, we already know and the exist, the audience exists and the blah, 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 blah. And so I think that's part of why it feels like, hey, who's in charge here? Like, it's the Spider-Man meme pointing the fingers. Is like, who decided on this? It's like, well, Nobody. It's just momentum. Kind it's of. like the machine is too big and you can't stop it. Yeah, but it's also like lawyers decided on it. Like the reason is like Sony has to make a new Spider-Man every three years or they lose the rights to Spider-Man. So and like at some point, some lawyer like was in a meeting and picked three over four or two. And it was like, I'm sure negotiated by both sides and whatever. But like, it's all like and you know, Spider-Man. Yeah, that's a contract. That's a good point. And Spider-Man crushed it. Like, so in terms of things that are like that, that was one where they all devoted a lot of time and energy to it. They were writing it for years. They were developing it and they, they nailed it. Right. I mean, I haven't seen it, but that's what I've been told. So I think, and I think the proof exists sort of. So there's all these other ones, those slots that are like on a lower scale that get filled where it's the same thing. It's like, we have a TV deal or a first look deal with so-and-so executive or star or person from this writer's room. And so we will fill that slot with that. Will it be good? Well, <laughs> you know, like it's go time at a certain point. So it's getting greenlit and it's happening regardless. All right. With that wonderful, like depressing ending from George, but, <laughs> but, but amazing movies and TV shows do get made and everybody should go watch Station Eleven. We should move on to a really wonderful Ask No Film School that we got from someone who's been sort of, uh, it's, it's really funny to watch. You know, I still think of No Film School originally as a website. But Amelia Edgley wrote in, hey, I follow No Film School on Facebook and YouTube and, and then eventually started listening to the podcast. And like, it, it is interesting, like the younger generation, they really get to the YouTube before the website. It's just, you know, <laughs> the, the world changes. And Amelia has a really wonderful question, which is, I work full time in marketing and I'm living at home with my parents while I work to buy my first, first home, which is like, frankly, punk rock, like good for you. Like home ownership's important, like paying money to landlords, although my landlord in LA, Brej was kind of amazing. Like, still, I was just paying his mortgage for him. Like, like, complete respect for like staying at home while you're working. But, like, you're wondering, how do I know when it's time to leave my full time job in marketing and take the leap to starting my own production company or doing something else to get my own projects going? Is the key like, do I go part time or do I like get a loan or so I have a few months runway or what is it? that can help me make that big leap. All right, so Amelia, I have so many thoughts about this. We all have so many thoughts about this. I'm just going to go ahead and jump in first, and then other people will disagree. First off, it is still, you didn't mention if you're in LA or New York. I want to tell you, you don't have to be in LA or New York, but I still don't think we're there. I still feel like you actually have to be in LA or New York. So as you think about making that leap and buying that house, I don't know if that means you have to stay an extra five years saving money with your parents to be ready to do that. That is something to think about. but. The, the thing I would really start with is I'd figure out what your end-term goals are and then work backwards. So you mentioned production company in there. 
And it's like, okay, well, production companies are great. I had a production company for five years. It got nominated for awards. It just, I left a couple years ago, but they just won a big award. Like production companies are super fun, but production companies aren't always the thing that you do. If you're like, I want to write direct studio. It's like, that's a different animal, right? Because production companies, you have to bring in production work. And so like, is you mentioned production companies. So I'm going to tailor this a little bit to that. But the true matter for all of this is there's always going to be a transition period where money gets tight. So the first thing is you want to save as much as physically possible. And I know you're trying to buy a home, so you're sort of saving for two goals. But that transition moment where you leave a steady every two weeks paycheck, and then you go out to like, I'm making money freelance, and I have to jank, uh, juggle like a dozen clients. And here's an annoying thing that you probably don't know about freelance, and I can't, can't believe I have to be the one to tell you, but I'm going to tell you, clients pay slow. So like as an employee, you get paid every two weeks. But like, you know, my biggest client for the last seven years takes about nine months to pay. And like, they were very upfront about it. When I got hired, they were like, hey, we're great. You'll love working with us, but we take nine months to pay. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay. Because they've always been honest with me about it. So I, I'm like, I get it. But like, it's, you need to have as much cash saved as you possibly can before you make the leap. Other people want to jump in and then I'll jump in with more stuff. Yeah, I got some some thoughts. I'm more on the non-production side. I'm more creative, more writing, and, and I've done production in the past. But I, I do want to say, you know, and, and reading Amelia's email, it was very, like, logical. It was very, like, you know, these are the steps I have to take. This is, you know, I want to do this. This is, it was very well laid out. Like, it was, like, a, she had the the right idea with, like, you know, thinking about this from a logical standpoint. But I do want to say, in entertainment, in creative pursuits, I don't think there's anything logical. You know, we, yes. the, if you want to get into this business to make money, you're going to not make any money. <laughs> and it's going to be hard. And you're going to, you know, at times be very critical of yourself. It's a very emotional pursuit. And it, you can't really, like think about it logically like that sometimes you just have to be obsessive you have to be a little masochistic you have to just like really you know like dig into that like weird part of yourself that is an artist that is you know crazy and dumb and you know jumps out of planes with a parachute you know and, and kind of pursue it from that perspective yes you know like charles you made a good good point really save up you know your, your money make sure you have a nest egg make sure you can afford that a lot of actors i hear them say okay you need if you're coming to la to pursue acting at least you know a year or two of money just to live off of where you can go My to God. auditions you can go to you know and that's hard for los angeles especially now because you know rent is obscene and coming at from the perspective of a writer the biggest challenge for me wasn't oh how can i afford to do this it was how do i believe in myself enough even in grad school, like I got accepted to a grad program for writing and for screenwriting, and I couldn't bring myself to call myself a writer, which is weird. And now it's, you know, years later, I'm, I feel much differently about it, but there was growth in that area. And so that was the biggest challenge for me. Not like, how do I, you know, pay my bills with this job? It's like, how do I feel like I'm not an imposter? And I think that's going to be my advice for Amelia. I, I know it's a little bit different. Is from what she's asking, but like really dig deep to your emotional center and figure out, is this what I want to do? You know, do I really want to be an artist, which is very difficult, especially nowadays. And is this a career I want to pursue? And then from there, if you're like, yeah, I want to be crazy. I want to, I want to jump out of a plane with a parachute or no parachute. You know, that's what it feels like sometimes then kind of be like, okay, financially 
what do I need to give myself? It's like it's like a startup. How much money do I need to really get this business off the ground? And then you should be fine, right? I I think a lot of a lot of yeah, sure yeah a lot of great stuff said here. You know, without knowing the particulars of. You know her end goals aside being a filmmaker, I would say savings number one. You know I won't go over anything. It's already said. I will say I would I would spend a lot more time practicing when you have a safety net of of living at home. Um, mm -hmm. You know we often forget that like to be a filmmaker, you don't have to go shoot on an Ari Alexa with you know the best light kid ever words ever and like have Roger Deakins involved in your short you know what I mean you really <laughs> need to make the you need to make things and and I would say like while the risk is low use your iPhone or Android and shoot some shorts I don't care if the sound is bad I don't care if you don't have any sound at all go out there and be practicing figure out what you like to do because I will say mm -hmm. you know moving to one of these places New York or LA your expenses will go up but also like you know, a lot of people's fear is like, what if I get there and I don't like to write? Or what if I get there and I don't want to direct anymore? Well, you can always pivot. You know, I came out here in a grad class of a lot of people and I'm the only one left still writing. And two of them are very successful executives who give the best notes because they, <laughs> they were, you know, it's like there's plenty of opportunities out here. Um, I do think it's take the leap. I would also say, well, I don't think you need to be fiscally insolvent. I would Say, like, if you go buy a house wherever you are, not New York or LA, I, I think you're going to increase the chance that you never come out here, right? You're, you're, cause you're yeah. buying something that's stapling you there. And at the end of the day, if you want to work consistently in Hollywood, um, you probably need to be in Hollywood, unless you're just trying to write features. If you're just trying to write features, you probably don't need to be here. Um, it's just still going to be hard. But I, but I would, you know, encourage you with this money saved, you either take the leap, make a move, use that money to try and get connections and do things but in the meantime shoot things and see if you like it you know get out there and, and make little documentaries do stuff with your iphone you know buy an inexpensive mic if you want shoot some one scene plays do it while the stakes are very low and see if you still love it because there's a lot of late nights and a lot of mm -hmm. um, high bills coming and you know maybe you don't like it and and I, I think that's fine and it's fair and maybe you'll just be like a great you know movie watcher and and discusser you know it, it's not that big of a deal but you know, test it out first. There is no amount of money you could save to move here that will buy you the experience you have making your own things at home. So I love that. That's, about that. That's good yeah. advice. And the other thing is to remember that depending upon how you want to do it, like make those things, put them in festivals, see them with audiences and like get better. Like it's always mm -hmm. better to like, you know, if you've written, you know, a buddy of mine on Twitter, uh, Facebook recently had a post where he was like, I don't read your screenplay. I can't believe I have to say this again, but like, I don't read your screenplay. And like, you know, I'm a writer. I've written 30 scripts. It took me a while to be good. I don't think he specifically said how many were bad, but I bet the first 15 were bad because he's only made like four or five movies as a writer. Like, so if you're like, I'm going to write, like write 10 scripts and then get to LA. Like, you know, if you're, if you're like living at home and saving money, like that's legitimate. The other thing for me is I, I like to always think about cash flow and ambition. At every point in your career, you have something that's covering your bills and something you're trying to do. And for me, the, the key thing to pay attention to is like, you know, you hope constantly that whatever your ambition thing is, you eventually get good enough at it that you're making a living from it. And then you let your old cash flow go because your previous ambition has become your new cash flow. And then you come up with a new ambition and you keep moving your way up slowly like that. So I think the best thing to do is like while you hang on to your current job, like what kind of productions can you squeeze into weekends and nights so that you're getting your feet wet in your production, you're making stuff. And hopefully you're doing that often enough 
that you're eventually that becomes busy and it becomes obvious you have to quit your day job because you just don't have time for your day job anymore because your business has taken off. Yeah, these are good. This is good advice. I I think there's no one way, but I love the question. I really love the you know that you listen to the podcast and enjoy them. <laughs> that you follow us on all these platforms and that's how you found us. And I think it's cool, like Charles said, that someone's cross-platform. They're like, I found no film school here and then I followed them there and then I learned. Like, But enough about us. Your question is great. And it's like a lot of people, there's a meme that uh, on the text thread I'm on recently, someone threw out that was like, how come in, L- in LA, someone will be like, can you get lunch tomorrow at, at noon? It's like, it's Wednesday, I'm at work. It's like, well, how about the next day? Like what? Like something about LA? Like people are working weird hours or gigs, and they're off they during are, the week, yeah. and the, the nine to five isn't quite the same. So that said, the way I did it, or at least some of it, was like nights and weekends, or saving up some money from some things, and then not working for a little while, and being young enough and willing to just like screw around and shoot for no money with my friends all night on something stupid that no one would ever see, but just kind of networking that way and learning about stuff and doing little festivals and, you know, those kinds of things. And I've talked about it a lot on this podcast before, eventually decided to like, you know, eventually got an agent and a manager wrote a screenplay. We wanted to actually sell people passed on it. And me and my co-writer were like, Hey, can we like sand this thing down? So it's so small that we can just do it. And it was an ambitious thing to do then. It's much less ambitious now because so many more, at that time, just having a, a light that was LED powered was kind of like space agey. There was just like, we could put a light out in the desert and not have a Jenny was kind of crazy. Now there's so much you can do and you don't have to spend on. And we recrafted our script to be something that used locations we knew we had, you know, the old story, uh, found people willing to do favors, found like this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, just last weekend, I got another check in the mail because it's on uh, streaming platforms and it got a distributor and it was, it's not a lot of money, but hey, it happened. So like, I think you have to think about it in terms of what is the goal and, you know, like buying a house is kind of like a long-term, like it's going to pay you off. I'm comparing it because that's in your email, but you're going to buy a house you're going to live there. It's like value forever. Movies don't have that. Like you, the, the chances that you, that you save up to make a single project and that it does pay off ever or slowly is very, it's a, it's a, it's a shot in the dark. Like it's just something you do to learn about it and see. So don't, I think like kind of what Charles said a little bit, don't put your eggs all in one basket and do that. Like I'm going to pull every favor, save up all my money and do one feature film Like try to do a lot of little shorts, try to Mm -hmm. see if you can get some money for, because the other thing that we ignored, people passed on our scripts. So we were like, Hey, let's make it anyway. People passing tells you something like it might tell you that there's problems or maybe not. Maybe you can still make it and get distribution. It depends on so many factors, but my main thing would be think about how to get a lot of stokes in the fire and see which ones heat up and then kind of follow that rather than think about, I'm going to just make the move all in one, cut off my cash flow and just be like, I'm a full-time filmmaker today. Like, I think that is a riskier play. Unlike what you're doing with the house, which I think is like, it's really not a risky play. The house will be there. You know, the asset is solid. The asset of a movie is not. 
And Amelia is in Australia, I believe. I, I think Queensland, University of Queensland. Oh. Queensland was her email. And I, I do want to kind of add, to kind of, you know, put a period on, on this whole big topic. Uh, one of my favorite tweets from Neil Gaiman is he was replying to some guy who was like, oh, if you're not writing, you know, for six hours every day, you're not a writer. Uh, or if you're not, you know, doing this crazy amount of output every day, you're not a writer. And he just replied, I wrote Coraline 50 words a night. And <laughs> that kind of like mentality, it's like maybe Amelia doesn't have to leave her current job. Maybe she can start writing now. You know, 50 words a night is not that much, especially if she wants think, to be a screenwriter. Yeah, I, I think that's... I've never saw that or heard that. And I love that you brought it up because like, we can't all be Jason Hellerman. Like we can't all write <laughs> 10 scripts a day plus a million articles. Plus I write, be on the podcast. I write three feature <laughs> like, films Like it's hard year. to be <laughs> and watch every movie that comes out. Or even like Charles is like teaching, doing no film school stuff. And he has his career running at the same time as a DP and a director and a writer. Like I think some of like, I'm a slow, like one thing at a time, like hunt and peck same. kind of person. So like, I think that that, that's how some people work and don't be like, I didn't write a whole feature this month. Like be like, I came up with an idea I like, and I'm not going to push it until I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You can write it one by one. I'll just, yeah. I'll echo what Charles said. It's like, it is one word at a time. Like, and you do get better. Like I didn't write this fast or this much, but I've written, I think around 25 features. You just get better at it. You get better at it. You get more decisive. And that's, yeah. and I bet, and, but, but it all you takes look, starting and practicing. Yeah. And I bet, I bet you look at a lot of them and think like, yeah, that one's not so great. And I'm glad I did it, but I'm like, I know what's better now. I'm glad I did it because I learned because I haven't written 25 scripts. I've written like five and I look back at some of them and I'm like, that was, that was stupid. Like I could do better. Oh, I've got a couple real bad ones. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I talked to someone yesterday and I was like, remember that real terrible one I wrote? You know, like it's out <laughs> It's it's yeah. funny though because that is how like I think I had a mentality that it was like oh I wrote this one it has to be good like it has to be perfect I only get one turn at bat like it's not like that like you can take a lot of swings that's actually it, I'm so glad you said that I remember I wrote a script and I handed it off to Nicolas Chartier of Voltage Pictures at the time this was right after they did God Dallas Buyers Club and it was bad. <laughs> and I thought I would never work in Hollywood ever again. And then, you know, were cut to like, what, six, seven, eight years later, maybe more. Christ, I'm, I'm at another production company talking to, you know, different people. And it's, it's going yeah, a lot I think, better. I think it's easy. Everybody else will forget about the bad thing you wrote. So you should exactly. too. Like, I've often thought like, I sent something awful all around town. Like, and it's like, they don't remember. Hey, they might not even have read it. <laughs> that's, so, you know, that's interesting. I looked up uh, one of the assistants, and he's a lawyer in Texas now, not even doing entertainment. So right. it's like, no one cares. I'm sure he doesn't remember your script. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, the worst part is remembering that, like, you know, I, my first job in LA was as a script reader, and I uh, read for creative artists, and I probably read a few hundred scripts in that first year, and they were all terrible. Two of them got made, but they were both bad movies. <laughs> like, I didn't read a single good script. In that time, I was reading for creative artists because you don't, because most scripts are really bad. There's like two or three scripts that I still remember how terrible they were. So like, I don't want to plant that in your head. <laughs> but like, there are two or three that if you really press me to tell I hope they're the ones that were script, made. I hope it's the ones that got made. But do you remember <laughs> the name on the script? 
No, the ones that got made were. Oh no, I do not remember the names on the show. That is, but it's buried somewhere in my email. I could find it with the coverage somewhere. No, the ones that got made. The one that sticks out that got made was that Bruce Willis movie, Burnt by the Sun, or whatever. He's like a soldier in Africa, and it's just like heard the script, and I was uh, Tears of the Sun or something, and it was like just the most banal. I was like. I think my coverage was like, I, I'm assuming this is getting made because it's professionally written and it was definitely professionally written, but like the concept was so like blah that yeah. I was like, oh, oh, okay. And yeah, there were a couple of those that got made that I was like, these are not strong, but I can see why they're going to happen. Yeah. I, I had yeah, some no, coverage as well that I, I was like, please pass on this. Please don't make this. And two years later, I'm seeing it on the big screen or I'm seeing a poster. That ties back right to what we were saying before about like so many of the things that happen are happening (laughs) no matter what. Mm -hmm. This episode is subtitled, Most Things Are Bad. No, definitely not. That's too depressing, (laughs) but that's kind of where where we've landed today. This episode is titled, Be One of the Good Things. Be, make your good (laughs) thing. There you go. All right. With that, be your good thing. Where can everybody find everybody on the internet? I'm on the internet everywhere. Charles Hayne, H-A-I-N-E, on the Twitter and the gram. I mean, that's all that's left of me on the internet. And, you know, on the on charleshayne.com. You can find me at Jason Hellerman at Twitter. Tweet me, reply, do whatever. Excited to hear from you. And you can find me on Twitter at iyaro, uh, I-Y-A-R-O, and then on Instagram at iyaro87 because someone stole my screen name. <laughs> and you can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube, Instagram, and be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. And we have a poll, an annual cinematographer survey that we have up right now. It's on the site, on the homepage. You can find it. You can also find it in the show notes here. And it is a way we are crowdsourcing information to help tell you how much you should be charging for your work in videography, cinematography, et cetera, wherever you live all across the world. So be sure to fill it out, share it with others. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>